Welcome back to Beekeeper Confidential. I'm your host, Mandy Shaw. Years ago, I was cruising the wine and beer aisles at a local grocery store and spotted the most gorgeously labeled beverage. It was Waggle, a session mead from Nectar Creek. It was love at first sip, and I have been a mead enthusiast ever since. Nectar Creek is owned and operated by Philip and Nick Lorenz, two brothers who learned how to brew at a young age and turned their passion into a successful and innovative craft brewery. In this episode, I spend some time with Nick enjoying their latest meads on tap while learning the secrets of the mead industry and walking away with an impressive collection of Nectar Creek goodies. They were wonderful hosts and made this beekeeper feel downright special. So relax, pour yourself something sweet, and enjoy the show. simply is alcohol made by fermenting honey and the way that I like to describe it to paint a little bit more detail is all alcohols are defined by where the fermentable sugar comes from and so beer means you ferment the sugar from grain wine means you ferment the sugar from fruit you know we we typically know it as grapes and then mead is its whole own category it's not beer it's not wine just means anything made by fermenting honey the truth is, is there's words for both of those. If you make something with fermentable sugar from grain and fermentable sugar from honey, so essentially a mixture between beer and mead, it's called a braggot. There's a word for it. In a braggot? A braggot. B-R-A-G-G-O-T. And then same thing with if you use fermentable sugar from honey and fermentable sugar from wine grapes, it's called a pimet. And if you use fermentable sugar from honey and fermentable sugar from cider, it's called a sizer. So there's there's words that speak more accurately to what those products are. But anything made by fermenting the sugar from honey is a mead. And the way that I like to describe that a little bit more is honey is made by bees collecting nectar from flowers. How many flowering plant species do you think there are, you know, known today? Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's something like it's something like 400,000 known flowering plant species right now and not not every single one of those has the ability to produce nectar that bees can make into honey, but you know, when you think about just unique varieties of honey that are available, that's way more than there are kinds of grapes. That's way more than there are kinds of hops. That's way more than there are styles of beer. And so the potential for the mead category is really limitless because just unique varieties of honey doesn't even start to look at varying alcohol contents. You know, there's meads that range from 3% alcohol to 20% alcohol. There's meads that are really sweet. There's meads that have absolutely zero sugar left in them. There's meads that are carbonated and are really comparable to a champagne. And there's meads that are still and more like a white wine or, you know, kind of a 
an aperitif dessert style of beverage. And, you know, there's all kinds of cool adjuncts that you can use, like coffee for our top bar, lemons and limes for nectarade, or hops, you know. So really the, the mead opportunity is really limitless, and it's really fun because we're in the infancy stage of this category becoming commercial. And, you know, we just hope that we get to be uh, a strong support to you know, other meteries that are opening up and a strong support to the bee community and a strong support to becoming and joining a part of just the general craft beverage industry. I've enjoyed Nectar Creek's beverages for years. I usually buy them for special occasions or if I'm at the store and I happen to see a new flavor that I haven't tried yet. But since I'm here at the tap room, it's totally appropriate to do a little bit of day drinking and taste some of the delicious meads that they have on tap right now. A flight is a just a sample tray of four of our different meads that you can get. And what we have is specialty releases, some of them that you can only find here at our tap room right now. And so mm-hmm. the first mead we have is a cleary sage mead. The second is honeycomb, which is a dry hopped mead. The third one is nectarade, which is a lemon lime mead. And then the fourth one is top bar, which is our coffee mead, which we're actually canning for the very first time ever today. Later on, Nick told me that whenever they're canning a first run of any of their mead flavors, they always print a special message on the bottom of the can. And at the end of the interview, Nick gave me a can of Top Bar Mead from the first run. And indeed, it has a special message on the bottom, and I'm going to be posting a picture of it on my Patreon page for my patrons. If you want to see what that message is, you can become a patron visit patreon.com forward slash Mandy Shaw. Top Bar is a coffee mead. We work with a local coffee roaster. They do just all organic coffee, and we were able to work with them to come up with a special blend of coffee varieties. And so in a 1,000-gallon batch of mead, we had about 60 pounds of coffee beans, and about (laughs) 40 of the pounds of coffee beans get added in the form of we make a cold brew and then add cold brew. And then the other 20 pounds are kind of like dry hopped in the product. So cold brew lending more to like the flavor profile and the dry hopping of just the straight beans lending more to the aroma. And Top Bar is pretty amazing because it gives you really fresh aromas like it smells like fresh coffee you know like like it was just made but then you taste vanilla you taste coffee you taste honey you taste a little bit of we put in bourbon soaked oak chips in it too so that's where a lot of the vanilla character comes from how did you guys come up with that idea for this recipe and was it did you hit it the uh, first time or was it did it take several tries so the the very first time we ever made it we made it as a product that was aged in bourbon barrels and so we made it for the holiday ale festival which is a big beer festival in portland that happens every year mm-hmm. we had just such amazing reviews and such a high demand that the next year we made a small batch of it and then the following year we made a small batch of it and then now um you know finally still just because of popular demand we're actually releasing it in bottles and cans and we'll have it out in distribution rather than kind of limited releases that you can't really find around to too readily how long does it take when you come up with a recipe and you make it how long from the day you put all the ingredients together how long does it take for it to be ready to serve in terms of actual brewing process it's about 20 to 25 days for us from the day that we make a batch to the day that it goes in cans or kegs or bottles well that is so cute because if you think about it it's like a brood cycle 
So worker bees are 21 days from egg to emerging adult. Drones are 24 days from egg to emerging adult, while queens are day 16. Brood cycle of a bee and cycle of fermentation for a mead are pretty darn close. Did they plan it that way? I'm not sure. As far as recipe development, you know, it it really is dependent on the product. Some of the products we've been able to figure out and move along a lot quicker than others. But, you know, some of them we do lots of different trials with and then we'll make just, you know, a really small batch, like one keg or just a couple kegs that we put it out in our tap room. Mm -hmm. And then we'll make a little bit of a larger release where we just do kegs that go out into specialty bars and to specialty places. And then to get it to a point where we can scale it and have enough volume to do cans and bottles and everything like that you know sometimes that's a two three year process by the time we get just to the right balance of how much coffee what coffee we're adding what roast how it's being added all of that sort of stuff we're Mm. kind of always tinkering with to get just the freshest and best aromas and best flavors of it wow and so what's the honey cone that's hops that is correct. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. Honey, honeycone <laughs> is a mead that we use um, hops in. We dry hop it. And so it's really fun because you get, mm. you know, fresh aroma of hops, but you don't really get the bitterness that you think of with hops. And hops mm-hmm. can be so much more than just than just bitterness. There's a lot of amazing flavors and aromas and things that can come out of them. And so it's a really nice highlight of that, that we always thought that our, our first facility here in Corvallis is maybe 100 yards away from the USDA hop research facility. This got me wondering, what exactly is the USDA doing with hops? I went to the website at uh, ars.usda.gov, and this is what they say. Welcome to the USDA ARS Hop Breeding and Genetics Program website. This program is located in Corvallis, Oregon, on the campus of Oregon State University. Our program goals are to develop advanced hop germplasm and cultivars that incorporate superior pest and disease resistance, increase yield, and enhanced brewing characteristics. We are also heavily involved with basic genetic research using both traditional and molecular genetic techniques. Wow, that's pretty interesting. And it also comes with links to their hop chemical summaries database, their cultivar index, And they also put a list of pedigree hop cultivars, including uh, the ancestry of cultivars developed by their program. So if you're interested in hops and hop chemistries, you should definitely take a look because there is a ton of information here. Anyways, back to the mead. You know, we're very privileged to be located to some of a lot of them. Just drive up there one day and be like, um, you know, we 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 were we're (laughs) kind of we're kind of in a in a mecca of a hop growing area and hop research with what's going on at Oregon State University, and so utilizing those connections and that background just seem seem important to always make sure that we're doing something and and they're you know hop, hops are just such an amazing thing that they don't need to be just a, exclusive to the beer and brewing industry that they work really well and in our meads as, as well are you guys the first to do that you know i don't i i don't know um let's when, just pretend you're the first yeah you I know there's the first. C- commer- <laughs> commercially i don't know if there was really a hot mead that you could find around in oregon yeah. before 
before we open up. You know, some I'm sure someone somewhere has made some hot <laughs> meat before, but it's it's kind of you know just in in general to everything that we're doing on. On one hand, mead commercially is a very new thing. You know, not a lot of people have done it or are doing it. And if you find mead out there in a grocery store in Oregon, more often than not, the chances are is it's ours. Mm -hmm. um, is that it's a, a product from Nectar Creek. But, you know, the reality is, is mead is the oldest purposely made alcoholic drink in the world. And so it's been made thousands of years longer than making wine or brewing beer or even, you know, a a concept to people or growing grain was even possible. People were purposely making and drinking mead. And so the kind of paradigm is that we're doing something new and special, but <laughs> the other side is that, you know, it's the oldest alcoholic drink in the world. And it's it's been like going you're on for bringing back an old mm -hmm. classic. Yeah. And why do you think that beer and wine sort of surpassed mead in their popularity, availability? The unromantic story is that they're both cheaper sugar sources. Honey is an expensive sugar source compared yeah. to grain and even compared to grapes, compared to cane sugar, which is what we make most of our like vodka and compared to potatoes. Honey, honey is an expensive sugar source. And because of that, and a lot of these other th crops are even subsidized that then we turn into the alcoholic beverages we know. Because of that, I think that mead was not able to keep up to be able to produce it on a, on a mass scale like that would be a lot more difficult and a lot more expensive. And so the reality is, is there'll never be the same amount of mead in the world as there is Budweiser. Um, I think that that's wow. one of the things that really, that really highlights how special of a drink it is, is that honey is a really special resource that we have innately mead is a really special product if we're using good quality honey and taking care of it. You're working with local honey producers? That's correct, yeah. I think the farthest farm away from us right now is in Silverton, Oregon, which um, not far at is, all. is wow. about 40 miles away from us. Do your beekeepers make honey exclusively for you guys? Mm. I mean, how much honey do you need to keep this operation going at this capacity? They do not make it exclusive for us. So the, the kind of motto that we have for sourcing our honey is we think of ourselves a little bit as a honey co-op at this point. Oh, and cool. the idea is, is that, you know, the more honey we use, the larger impact we have on, you know, agriculture and all the beekeepers around here. Mm -hmm. But with that, if a beekeeper bets on us for us to purchase all of their honey and something were to happen to us, you know, that could put them in a hard spot or vice versa. You know, honey is an agricultural commodity. So one bee farm may not have as good as a year as the next year. And if we're relying on them for all of our honey, then we're kind of in a hard spot. And so we've kind of been consistently adding a new beekeeper and dividing up our impact and our sourcing that way. But everyone we work with, they're local to us. We work directly with the farm, so there's no middle person, no packing house. Um, it's just raw, unfiltered honey straight from bee farms that we have relationships with right here in the Willamette Valley for right now. Do you go and visit during the season or throughout the year? Um, or do you yeah, have time? I, mean, <laughs> I, I, I personally I have not gone and visited a lot, but you know, a good example would be um, we get a lot of and the majority of our honey from Queen Bee Honey Company. Mm -hmm. And they're right here in Corvallis, um, you know, right next to where our facility is. And my brother worked for that bee farm for about seven years. And oh. He's still good friends with them. He Do you have any here? There's some just across the road from us. And actually just yesterday, a crew of folks came to come and work on them, put them to sleep, so to say, for the rest yeah, of the winter. Yeah. So then they're 
you know, ready to to go in the spring. But you're not a beekeeper? I am not a beekeeper myself, no. <gasps> There's a story I love to tell. And the, the very first time I went and kept bees with my brother, when my brother had been working for a couple years, and I went out with him to move hives. And you move the beehives in the, at night because they're not flying as much. I got a veil that had a hole in it. And I didn't oh. realize until the inside of my veil was just completely full of bees. And, you know, we were moving something like, you know, 100 hives or something like that. And I'm sitting there with a veil full of bees. And my brother's just kind of laughing at me. He's like, oh, you'll be <laughs> oh fine. Walk God. away. Shake it off. And This know, is your first time this is like like really being close up with bees? Being close up with, like, that many bees, you wow. know, and the first time, like actually trying to help work with them. You were hazed. And <laughs> yeah, so I, I walked away. My brother was laughing. And sure enough, I took my veil off and shook it off. And I was completely fine. And, you know, I got stung a handful of times, but luckily I'm not a, actually got stung on my leg a bunch. Oh, but, you know, I'm not allergic. And after that, you know, I didn't really have any thoughts about wearing a veil. Or, you know, it was kind of like yeah. the the crash course where, you know, my brother would go out all the time not wearing a veil or opens up hives without wearing gloves and just doesn't think twice about it. It's like, how do you ever get comfortable with that? And now it's like, oh, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> and then he's like, hey, let's start a mead business. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> we we had been talking since we were both in high school about starting a, a value-added agriculture business and our interests were agriculture and our interests were brewing. And we kind of said, how do we, how do we marry the two passions? And Phil being a beekeeper finally is just like, Oh, duh. You know, <laughs> that's, that's the natural marriage. Like, we have yeah. all this honey. And so we, we played for a bunch of years on just making, just making mead. Um, Are you self-taught? I'm not really self-taught. Most, most of what I learned, uh, started with learning from my brother um you know phil he's four years older than me and we started brewing in high school right so i i <laughs> i was what were you guys brewing in high school we were making beer my brother got caught drinking beer as a 16 year old high school kid like you know lots of 16 year olds do by, by our mom and her response was well you're going to be exposed to alcohol the rest of your life you got to know how to control it and where it comes from so you can have a healthy relationship with it. And he went to the local brewing supply store and bought himself a homebrew kit and started making beer with one of his friends. And they started teaching me. And so Phil's, you know, 16 and I'm like 12 years old. And I don't really know <laughs> that I was conscious that it was beer at the time, more yeah. that I was just having to clean up after him oh. and do that sort of stuff. <laughs> but, you know, from there, we, we kind of continued to get more serious about it. And, and brewing became a serious conversation, you know, and it's... It's kind of funny because when we started Nectar Creek, I was only 22 years old oh and my, my brother is 26. And that was in 2012? Yeah, that was in 2012. Wow. So in your business is still in its first decade. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's we're, amazing. We're, in, we're, we're, we're young. You know, I'm not, I'm not even 30 years old and my brother's, my brother's just four years older than me. And You guys are so lucky that at such a young age you found your place in the world <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I i i think i think we are really lucky this clary sage is my number one favorite that's the best on the flight that's, the clary sage yeah i well, i really like this and the honeycomb but the clary sage is the one i remember 
tasting years ago. Awesome. Yeah, so Clear Sage, to talk about it a little bit, is a single floral source mead. So that means all of the honey is coming exclusively from Clear Sage nectar. It's kind of our way that we can do some education around honey, you know, that depending on mm-hmm. what nectar source bees are collecting will determine the flavor of the honey, the color of the honey, and then that's going to impact, you know, what the mead tastes like. And so the only ingredients in that are just raw, unfiltered honey, and then the honey is diluted so it's able to ferment, you know, because mm-hmm. raw honey is stable and never changes <laughs> and never goes bad. And that's it. So it's just raw honey. Mm-hmm. And it's just like the pure essence of what Cleary Sage nectar or clear sage honey tastes like and it's it's light it's delicious it's I herbaceous there's like it characteristics of vanilla it's yeah it's beautiful and it is like you said very pure absolutely yeah, yeah. you know there's there's a lot of our meads mm-hmm. you know you can kind of look at and be like oh i i know that's going to be delicious like nectarate our lemon lime mead it's like you you see that on your shelf and it's yeah. like it's a light refreshing drink that's sweetness of honey and has the delicious, you know, taste of lemon, lime, and the tartness and the acidity from lemon, lime, just like a easy, refreshing drink. But the meads like Cleary Sage and the meads like Waggle, our wildflower mead, are the things that we find a lot of our regulars really stick to because yeah. because they're they're so beautiful and they are just like a pure essence of the honey that that's something that people once they kind of learn the story of what meat is and they learn the story of what those products are you know there's there's something about being able to pull out all of the individual flavors that come out of those products that make them you know really special really unique to to get a drink and enjoy i remember a hibiscus mead that you guys did a while back yep are you still making that we are not making that right now but we we did we we did make a lot of hibiscus mead and it was really popular for us for a long time. We also had a peach mead for a little while. It was oh. really popular. We've had a, you know, a bunch of different meads that we've gone yeah. through. We've had a lot of specialty like barrel-aged meads and sour meads. And so we've done you know, all kinds of fun stuff like that. Do you just come up with recipes or a, a concept for a new flavor and then just dive in and do it? Or do you guys plan out for the year things that you want to try? It's a little bit of both, um, you know, depending on kind of where it's at. So meads that we make exclusive for our tap room, we have a little bit more um, flexibility with. And, mm-hmm. you know, we'll kind of do a little, we'll do market research. We'll do just ideas that our brewers have, ideas that even just people in our tap room have, ideas that we hear from customers coming in. Um, to make the bigger batches, you know, we kind of have to make sure that it's, a little bit more commercially viable that we that that also just commercially producing it is possible so you know if it's made with some cool unique ingredient can you get enough of it to even make make a large enough batch or kind of the type of things we have to we have to ask but so you know for for our production schedule next year our our specialty products that we're going to make um you know in draft are already thought out and already you know already already on the plan and do you where keep we're those get the ingredients from under lock and key until you're ready to release a little bit yeah i mean some of it any secrets you want to share uh, for our <laughs> listeners you know we're just we're just going to keep making um delicious meads and keep experimenting you know it's it's really fun for us to be able to be able to make a lot of unique stuff and be able to kind of expand what people think is possible with mead. Um, 
I think keep doing it. I think that something <laughs> amazing. <laughs> Thank you. I think something that's really that's really helped our brand a lot is that before we started making mead commercially in the U.S. or really really anywhere in the world, as far as I've been able to find, there you couldn't really hardly get carbonated sparkling session meads where you drink them yes. in a comparable manner to a beer or a cider. And so when we are making like a bourbon barrel aged wildflower mead, there's a lot of people in the craft beer community that otherwise wouldn't have any interest in mead, but they see that and they're willing to try it. And it opens up mead to a whole new demographic or same thing with um, sours. You know, one of our most popular meads that we've made is a um, framboise style mead. And oh. so it's a, it's a rat. It was a, it was a raw wildflower mead and then the addition of a bunch of raspberries and then it was fermented with lactobacillus. And so it gets all this um, lactic acid, which makes it taste tart and sour. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's a, it's a popular sour beer style. And that same thing, you know, there's, there's a ton of people that maybe weren't cider drinkers or wine drinkers or mead drinkers, but they'd look at that and say like, wow, that sounds delicious. I'll try that. And so it's fun for us to kind of push the limits of what's ever been, what's been done with mead and what, what's possible. But it's also fun to see just new people have their eyes light up when they taste yeah. it. It's like, You're oh, like the this Willy is what Wonka you guys are of about. the mead industry. <laughs> we are the music makers and we are the dreamers of dreams. <laughs> Let's walk around. Okay. That sounds great. We'll we'll start the tour by walking in the back into our production and this space. This is employees only, and they're giving me access. Yeah, so you know, Whoa. back here, what you can see is you just mountains of product, and we have kegs and bottles and cans of a whole bunch of varieties of products that are just ready to ready to go out the door. And so this is product that's either packed and ready to be shipped out or stuff that'll be packed and shipped out in just the next couple weeks here wow um and then what you can see too is we've got a canning line set up and i've never seen a canning line before how does this work on the back side closest to us what you can see is a depalletizer and so those are all just empty cans that are then going down a chute and they spiral down the chute and so in that they get cleaned and they get sanitized uh-huh so can we get a little yeah, tiny let's, bit closer let's grab a look. okay everybody's staring at us yeah, that's all right <laughs> um, yeah so you can see they they come off the pallet they and they don't have the labels on them yet nope no our our, our oh, cans, wow. we we put the labels on after the fact and that's pretty common now in the in the beer industry and in the wine industry but yeah, so then then you can see that the cans are getting filled, and then afterwards they get a lids put on them and the lids sealed, and then the label, and then they're packaged from there. When you say it like that, it sounds pretty simple. <laughs> it looks totally complicated. Here, we should have a look at our honey melter while okay. we're back here. A honey melter, okay. <laughs> I was kind of joke and say that it's like a giant honey sauna. <laughs> what? Oh, this is it. Yeah, so we go through a lot of honey, right? And so we get honey in the form of 55-gallon drums. 55 gallons of honey is about equivalent to 650 pounds of honey or so. (laughs) And what this does is this gives us an opportunity to melt about six drums of honey at the same time. Wow. And melt, do you mean just 
So when when we get honey, oftentimes it's crystallized, right? So it's rock hard and solid. Okay. The same way it would be if you had left honey in your cabinet for too long. Yeah. And in that form, you know, it's not really in a form that we can work with it or process it. And so we heat it up just warm enough that it's something that we can start to work with, you know. Mm -hmm. So the honey is liquid and it's warm. And something that's big for us is we don't heat the honey up warmer than it would be naturally in a beehive. Right. Oh. And so so it becomes liquid, but we're not, you know, boiling it. We're not doing pasteurizing. We're not doing yeah. anything like that. Keeping it raw. We are keeping it raw. And what this is, is, is essentially a honey sauna. And there's a plate on the bottom. We can circulate water at whatever temperature we want through the bottom. And then the whole thing's really insulated. And so the ambient temperature is warm enough to heat up all these drums of honey. And then that way, there's not any hot spots on the honey, too, where necessarily if you're doing direct contact to heat up the honey, you may mm -hmm. create an one individual spot that's really hot, but it's not equal heating. Yeah. And we can look in here. Whoa. If you smell it, it smells like wax and honey yes. and everything like yeah, that. Yeah, it does. And right now. Wow. I can just feel the heat coming out of there. So this is actually pretty cool that you're getting to see this because we have a bunch of honey in here that's from the Oregon State Beekeeping Lab. So Oregon State University does <gasps> a bunch of awesome bee research. Are they getting their own? Yeah, so out of their Whoa. hives that they have, they were able to give us, I think it's about 60 gallons of honey or something like that, that we are going to make a special mead for them oh out of, and gosh. they're going to come and help us make this mead. And then with that, we're going to sell it just exclusively in our tap room, nowhere else. Pretty much all the proceeds are just going to go back in support oh. of the Oregon State Master that's Beekeepers Program here in Corvallis. That's incredible. And so... These are the fermentation tanks. Do you mix the ingredients right there and just plop them in, or what, where do like is this the kitchen? Yeah, yeah. This 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 is the production space. This is where everything happens. And so, so what does that look like? Because these tanks are really large. Um, How do you somebody climb on a ladder and just dump everything in? Yeah, you know, <laughs> it, it, you, know you, you don't you don't really see a lot because the the mixing happens inside of the tanks uh -huh. and. There's a lot of, so much of brewing is just sanitation, right? So much of what we do is keeping everything clean. And so everything needs to be really sanitized from the tank that we're mixing in to the hoses that we use to the pumps that help move stuff. And so we get all this raw, unfiltered honey, right, which has wild yeast and bacteria. Yeah. And we have to keep everything clean to make sure that nothing grows. So there's no off flavors or weird tastes because... When we ferment it, we want it to taste like the honey and what we want it to taste like rather than, you know, some random bug growing. And so <laughs> um, we have a series of hoses that we pump the honey straight from the drums into the tank. And then we mix just really finely sterile filtered water. And then that's all circulated together until the honey's in complete solution. And from there, we can control the level of sugar content. So how much honey we add will determine how much sugar there is and then mm -hmm. that'll then indicate how much alcohol the final product can have H how much sampling do you guys need to do <laughs> lots is, of it is that tons, part of your job description tons, tons and tons of sampling <laughs> there's a lot of meat experiments that are required everything yeah. from you know every batch that goes out you have to make sure the product tastes good before it goes out and thro throughout the process we we monitor the fermentation pretty closely and yeah. so measure how fast it's going and measure how it's tasting along the way and then 
you know, on the back end of things when things are complete, you know, we, we just have to do a lot of product research to make sure it still tastes good. <laughs> I would exceed at that part of the job. <laughs> but yeah, here's, here's the top bar label. Why four packs? Why four packs? Yeah. That's a great question. You know, it was, it was a really great way for us to start getting our product in cans and into the market. Um, mm-hmm. Okay. You know, there's, there's a lot of difficulties and a lot of equipment that's needed to just kind of have, have scaled efficiencies to be able to get yourself in certain package sizes. And I think that's something that not a lot of consumers realize is just the difficulty on the back end to offer a variety of packages. Like, you know, mm-hmm. why do they only sell it in just this one size bottle? And it's like, well, oh, yeah. you know, every bottle that you have, you have to have pretty much a special piece of equipment that fills just that size bottle. Or you have to have a special piece of equipment that's able to do multiple size bottles. And same thing with cans and getting cans out the door. Um, and same thing with kegs and all, and all of that different equipment. And so... Um, I think the four-pack also speaks to how precious the, the ingredients are. Yeah. I know that I personally found for myself sometimes on like a weekend night or going to a, a dinner party that a four-pack is just kind of a single serving, though. Yeah. <laughs> We have some barrels back here, too, that you Ooh. can look at. So, um, we Are those in use right now? They're full wow. of a 8% wildflower mead. We have a bunch of different kinds of barrels, and so they're all different bourbon barrels. So we have barrels from Four Roses. We have barrels from Maker's Mark, and we have oh, wow. old um, wine barrels that Do had a rye whiskey in them. Can I have some barrels, or do you have to buy them? I wish. I, I don't know anyone at Maker's Mark, necessarily. There, There's a bunch of barrel brokers that we work with. So a kind barrel of like, broker? Yeah. So that's a thing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the demand for barrel, used barrels in the beer industry is so high right now that, you know, there's specific people that are making their living just off of finding and sourcing different kinds of barrels and then reselling them to breweries and... You know, things like making sure the barrel stays wet because if the barrel's not wet, it'll dry out and the wood will shrink and then the barrel's no longer watertight. Oh and so how the barrels God. are maintained and taken care of before they get to us is really important. Mind blown. Little little <laughs> details. Bubbles, bubbles everywhere, but not a drop to drink. Your labels are beautiful. Who's your designer? We work with an organization, in, uh, a marketing agency in Portland called Sasquatch. A lot of the ideas have come from kind of our thoughts, and we've worked with them really well where they, they're they able to kind of turn a lot of our thoughts into reality or give us guidance where our thoughts maybe don't make sense <laughs> or aren't really possible. Um, we really wanted the focus to be on education. We make a craft product, and we really wanted our product to speak to that. And so, you know, having legitimate artwork on the label that isn't just block letters and text was something that was important to us and so on all of our labels you'll find hand-drawn or hand um, hand painted images of bees and flowers that are pretty much telling people what the ingredients of the product are not everybody knows what it is so that education piece is important and we don't get to talk with every person that picks up a bottle and so if we can have a beautiful label that highlights the craft that we're doing and then also you know speaks to what the ingredients are you know the other piece is that our our product is placed next to beer and cider on the shelves and you know we knew that for this to be viable that we are going to be up against the 7,000 breweries that are open in the country right now in the, I don't even know how many cidery, you know, probably 
500 to 1,000 cider companies that are open in the country right now, too. We needed a product that, that could stand out and, and hold its own and show that it was a unique product, that it wasn't another beer, that it wasn't another cider, that it was its whole own unique thing. What they are doing at Nectar Creek truly is unique. Their beautifully decorated, family-friendly taproom is used to host fundraising events creatively titled Mead for a Need, and they're holding an upcoming community event called Bee Bash in April of 2019. They pride themselves on creating a unique and welcoming space for people to come together and enjoy the fruits of their fermentation. Their menu features in-house smoked meats, a variety of gluten-free selections, which is important to me because I have a child with celiac disease. I had the brie and apple panini, and it was delicious. They also make non-alcoholic honey sodas. They have a full kids menu. For information about Nectar Creek and notes from today's episode, check out my blog at waggleworkspdx.com. And if you're looking for another podcast, definitely look into Kiwi Mana. It's a New Zealand podcast about beekeeping, and yours truly has just become one of their roving reporters. They have beekeepers from around the globe reporting into them about what's happening with the bees in their area. Until next time, may the buzz be with you.